Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. As I have for the last couple of years, I taught a workshop at the San Miguel Writers' Conference and Literary Festival in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. And I was reminded of a couple of food-related idioms in Spanish that I think you'll appreciate. In English, if you're really scared about something, you might describe yourself as shaking like a leaf, mm -hmm. right? But in Spanish, the phrase is temblar como un flan. To shake like a flan, like yeah, the dessert? Yeah, to oh. tremble like a flan, which, like a flan, which you can just picture it, right? When somebody sets down the plate on your table and it's just... Yeah, it's because it's kind of like a... Firm jello, firmer than jello, right? Yeah. It's not quite as wiggly, but yeah. still wiggly. Yeah. I love that image. And I also love darle la vuelta a la tortilla, which literally means to flip the tortilla. Mm -hmm. And you would use that in the context of, say, you're watching your favorite soccer team, and they're just losing and losing and losing. But all of a sudden, something happens, and they end up winning the game. You say they've they've flipped the tortilla. Oh, and we would say flipped the script, maybe, in mm -hmm. English, or to... Turn the tide. Yeah, yeah, okay. you turn the tide. But I like that they're both food-related. Outstanding. Well, we know that a lot of you speak other languages at home. I know you've got idioms and things that just don't quite translate into English as clearly as they are in the original language. Let us know, 877-929-9673, or email words at waywardradio.org, or spill it all on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello. My name is Lennon. I'm calling from San Diego, California. Hey, Lennon. What's going on? Well, I was having a debate on Facebook, of course, with a buddy of mine about the mac in mac and cheese. Okay. And we're discussing, and we're wondering if the mac was short for macaroni or if the mac was an acronym for macaroni and cheese. <laughs> I think it's short for Mac. He says that he's been to, like, restaurants before, and on the menu it's had, like, Mac, just Mac as a side. Yeah. Because if because if Mac is an acronym for macaroni and cheese, calling it Mac and cheese would be redundant. But if you just refer to it as, I need a side of Mac, or I made a bowl of Kraft Mac, then right. it would be an acronym. Craft, the Kraft Mac, Kraft did Mac, you say? yeah. The, the famous KD, the Kraft Dinner. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Exactly. The question is, let me summarize this. The question is, is Mac short for macaroni and cheese as a whole as an acronym, or is Mac short for macaroni and cheese without being an acronym? Right, exactly. Like, is Mac short for macaroni, or is M-A-C an acronym for macaroni and cheese. All right. Mac has been an abbreviation of macaroni for just the word macaroni since at least the 1930s. All right. Macaroni and cheese has been around since the 1840s. And it started, I believe, as an American dish. Mac is short for macaroni and cheese and short for macaroni. And it is not an acronym for macaroni and cheese. And I know that's Oh, interesting. Yeah. So MAC does not stand for the letters at the beginning of macaroni and cheese. Okay, got it. That's okay. right. I knew it. All right. The thing is, the British tend to call it macaroni cheese without the and, which is interesting, too. Right? Oh, I didn't know oh, that. Wow. And a lot of people just call it, give me some mac, and they mean the whole dish macaroni and cheese. Right, but it's not an acronym. It's not an acronym. Although people have reinterpreted it as an acronym, and that's known as a backronym. When you have a word that already exists and someone invents the thing that it supposedly stands for or re-assumes re, um, after the fact that it stands for something, that's a backronym. Interesting. Okay. So, Lennon, does this mean that you won an argument? Is this what's I, going on? I think technically, yes. I think I'm, I'm on board so far. All right. One to zero. <laughs> How about that? Acronyms are awesome. I love it. <laughs> hey, you know, we should do a show about language. There's so much fun stuff There's to talk idea. about. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Lennon, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I love the show. You guys are awesome. Thanks for having me on. Oh, hey, yeah, great. great to have you. All right, bye, guys. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.
877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. We heard from Kelly Hallmark, who lives in San Antonio, Texas, and she writes, My mother has always been very into geology. She never pursued a degree in it, but is incredibly knowledgeable. As a kid, we traveled in a trailer all across the western U.S., visiting and revisiting parks. Being far more inquisitive than anyone can tolerate, I had to stop and ask her about every single rock. Eventually, she started calling them all leverites. As in, leave it right there. <laughs> and Kelly wondered if this was just her mother's term, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's That's a right. thing. Yeah. This, is, this is geologist slang for a specimen that isn't worth picking up or the kind of rock that you might collect early in your career, but then, you know. Right. It, toward the middle of your career, you, you've seen plenty. You got enough of those. You leave her right there. Leave her right there. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was first reading that email, I thought, "Oh, leverite. That's that's a type of <laughs> of mineral that I don't know about." <laughs> I love it. It reminds me of we've talked about this on the show. Unobtainium. Unobtainium. It's a substance you want but can't get. Unobtainium. <laughs> We love getting your emails, and sometimes we read them on the air. So send them to words at waywardradio.org or call us with a language question, 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Joan Berry from Hobart, Wisconsin. Hi, Joan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I was listening to your show last Saturday, and so many people mentioned things that my mother used to say. Mm-hmm. There was one that I didn't hear, but she used to say, save your breath to cool your soup. If someone wasn't listening to advice or if uh, if I felt bad about something, she would just say, oh, honey, just save your breath to cool your soup. Yeah, that expression sort of substitutes for for talking. You know, instead of talking, you're telling somebody to do something that's more useful than the thing that they're gabbing about. That mm-hmm. they're, they're exactly they're, they're Exa- prattling yeah. on, and uh, it's it's got a little dig to it because you would think that you would save your breath to keep yourself alive, but <laughs> but we're talking about just cooling your soup, or or there are yeah, lots of different yeah. versions of it, like to cool your coffee, to cool your broth, to cool your pottage or your, your porridge. porridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, yeah. It's, it's it's a little dig there. And it's hundreds of years, for at least 400 years in English, right? It's very old. I've, I've heard that there's a version of it in Cervantes. Oh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Would be 1615, something because like that? Because throughout the history of humankind, we've always looked for nice and mean ways to tell people to shut up, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in other words, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's got that little dig, but it's also sort of polite. <laughs> and that was exactly my mother. Joan, thank you so much. She sounds like a wonderful woman, and I can hear the love and affection in your voice. We really appreciate you sharing these memories with us. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. What a perfect illustration of what we always say on the show, right? Words aren't just transmitted from generation to generation. They're transmitted along with love. Yes, yes. Yeah. They are handed down, as as we like to say, mm-hmm. as like linguistic heirlooms that you give to your offspring and for, for them to remember you by in some ways. Yeah, and Joan has done that with her yeah. mother. 877-929-9673. Hi, you have a way with words. Oh, hi. Uh, my name is Ian Neal. I'm a local from uh, San Diego, and I got a uh, question about pronunciation of a word. Excellent, Ian. Let's hear it. My wife always uh, ribs me for uh, pronouncing the word E-X-A-C-T-L-Y exactly with pronunciation on the T. She says that it should be exactly. And so uh, every time I say exactly, she gives me this glare from across the room, and uh, it's become a running joke in our uh, family. Um, So I figured I'd call in and uh, put the... uh, debate to bed once and for all. Are you supposed to be exact when you say exactly, or should it be exactly? <laughs> Where did you pick that up, Ian? Uh, I've just always said it that way. Uh-huh. And where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in San Diego. 
Okay. What does your wife say? Uh, my wife says exactly. Right, exactly. With the K sound or right. the Is she sound. a San Diegan too? She is, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. But she's more uh, she's more worldly than I am. She did a Fulbright in Turkey for a few years and has uh, done a lot of study abroad stuff. Okay, so a house divided so, in San Diego. Exactly. And she's in the Department of Linguistics at SDSU, so she's very <laughs> firm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Well, then. <laughs> <laughs> so when she glares at you across the room, it's with degrees on the wall behind her. Indeed. <laughs> so exactly versus exactly. Mm-hmm. You're both right. Thanks for calling. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I figured. Look, there's two common pronunciations of this word throughout the English-speaking world, no matter where English is spoken. And in your household, they both exist. Exactly with a T and exactly without the T sound. If you look in dictionaries, which have done a thorough job, depending on the dictionary, but most common dictionaries have done a lot of research on this sort of thing or talked to experts, you will find that some dictionaries include both pronunciations and some only include the T pronunciation. So if we're actually looking at dictionaries, more dictionaries agree with you than agree with your wife. Interesting. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that you're more correct. Oxford dictionaries, <laughs> Oxford dictionaries, Merriam-Webster dictionaries, and Macmillan dictionaries are the ones that include both pronunciations. And I think they more accurately reflect the state of the language when it comes to the word exactly. Hmm. And actually, Good now time. that I'm, I'm self-conscious about it, I don't even really know, I know what I say when I'm not thinking about it. Martha, you can have to tell <laughs> exactly. me later. I, I say exactly. Exactly. But I yeah. have a friend who says exactly, exactly. And it sounds so exact. It sounds exact, yeah. Yeah. And it's fine. And there's not a British-American split. It's not educated versus uneducated. It's just simply the tradition that you come from. It's just the way that you learned the word. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. And I can tell you one more thing. The reason that T disappears for a lot of speakers, like your wife, is because that K and T sound next to each other, the sound, the, the consonant clusters tend to reduce to one consonant sound. And she will understand that as a professor of linguistics. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you for clarifying this for me. Okay, cool. Appreciate sure. it. <laughs> All right. T- take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Now I'm thinking of et cetera, too. Et cetera. That's a great one. A lot of people say et cetera. Et, right, yeah, because that, mm-hmm. that T-S sound there together, you wanna, your mouth wants to do some simplifying with mm-hmm. it. You find that happens again and again and again. Mm-hmm. 877-929-9673 is the number to call to talk with us about any aspect of language, whether it's pronunciation or grammar or slang. Give us a call or send us an email. That address is words at waywardradio.org. This show's about language examined through family, history, and culture. Stick around for more. Got a minute? We need your help. Head over to gum.fm slash words and share your thoughts in our quick survey. Your feedback matters. It's the backbone of our show's success. Thanks for making our show even more successful. That's gum.fm slash w-o-r-d-s. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett, and on the line is our quiz guide, John Chinesky from New York City. Hi, John. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. What's up, bud? I thought we'd start with a really uh, interesting quiz. That's my code word for something that's really weird, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey and in New York where police cars sound like this. Like that, you know? (laughs) I have a dog. I used to have a dog who sounds like that. They sound like hounds? (laughs) So, so, sort of, yeah. Now, the first time I ever heard a UK police siren, I was like, what? It goes like, Mm -hmm. right? At least they they used to. They're sort of changing. Now, before the old UK police sirens have completely dropped from memory, I thought we'd do a quiz where I made you guys sound like UK police sirens. We're, <laughs> we're looking for answers. Thanks. Sure. We're looking for answers that contain both the sounds E and aw 
For example, if I said, this is the sound a donkey makes, you would say, hee-haw, hee-haw, hee-haw. Oh. But you, now you have to say it at least three times to get the traffic out of your way. Okay? Let's, let's oh, give boy. it a shot. All right. Uh, this is a typical piece of playground equipment. Seesaw, seesaw, seesaw. <laughs> I don't think any cars are going to move out of their way from that. Well, but, I'll uh, that's, bellow that's if you correct. want me to. Yeah. Just, you know, you'll put some heart in it. Here we go. Uh, now, speaking of playgrounds, this is a game where children jump over one another. Leapfrog, leapfrog, leapfrog. Oh, boy. That's your just as... Uh... Is that it? <laughs> don't, don't you take improv classes? Aren't you like... Uh, yeah. Don't you get up on stage? Come on, do it. Yeah. Let's put some heart in oh, it. Come on. Oh. Yeah. All right? I'll commit to that leapfrog. Say yes. Huh? Say yes and. Okay, here we go. <laughs> in the UK, they typically use this container to brew a hot beverage around 4 p.m. Mm-hmm. Teapot, teapot, teapot. <laughs> That's good. Very good. Much better. <laughs> if you come from the southern U.S., you might refer to your grandmother this way. Me, ma, me, ma, me, ma. I actually did. All right, yeah. You did? Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. The cars are definitely getting out of the way for that. Now, bechamel or velouté are examples of this kind of cooking ingredient, usually made with milk. Cheese sauce, cheese sauce, cheese sauce. <laughs> I'll accept that. Cream sauce will oh. also work. Yeah. Cream sauce. Okay. How about the NFL franchise based in Seattle, Washington? Seahawks, <laughs> Seahawks, Seahawks. Seahawks, yeah, that's probably what the sirens sound like mm. in Seattle. Uh, you know, the late Tom, Tom Petty could have told you that this is the motion of a body where gravity is the only force acting upon it. Free fall, oh. free fall, free fall. <laughs> Very good. This is the range or distance over which someone can hear. Oh, earshot, earshot, earshot. Oh. <laughs> Very good. This is insincere praise used to persuade someone to do something. Uh, sweet talk, sweet talk, <laughs> sweet talk. Very good. And that that was some very sweet talk from you guys. You guys did great. Congratulations. This quiz was our sweet spot, sweet spot, sweet spot. Very good. Nice. John, thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. Really appreciate it. Talk to you next thank week. You. Talk to you then. Cheers. This show is not just goofing around. Oh, there's a lot of that, there's too. There's a lot of we that. We talk about words and language and slang and things that happened at work where somebody was arguing over the right way to put something in a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Mariana from Argentina. From Argentina? Where in Argentina? Well, right now I'm in Buenos Aires in a town or a part of town called El Tigre. I have a question. Actually, I was I started to take some uh, mindfulness classes and, and uh, you know and courses, and uh, in some of the readings that I've been doing, um, you know, of course, uh, a lot of what it's what um, mindfulness talks about in the practice is loving kindness, and mm-hmm. one of the words that comes regularly is compassion. Mm-hmm. So uh, I am usually very curious about etymo- etymology, mm-hmm. about words, and I, I wanted to, to 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 understand. And you know, it comes that when when you uh, search compassion, it comes it comes from to suffer with. Mm-hmm. Now, when I uh, oh, to suffer with somebody. So when I was looking for the words, I also came to sympathy, which comes with the same etymology, mm-hmm. and when I try to figure out what's the difference between compassion and sympathy, I, I really could not find the right, you know, they sort of, it seems to be shades of the different thing, but I, I'm not sure about that, so I figure I could call you guys and you let me know. Oh, what a good question. Well, you have similar words in Spanish, right? Compasión and simpatía. Is sympathia. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, there's one more. is empathy, empathia. Too. Right. It comes up too, so I'm, I wasn't sure. Right. And and what's your sense of the difference between those two words in Spanish, or is there a difference? Well, when I think about sympathy and compassion, it seems almost that from sympathy you're coming from the outside, mm-hmm. looking in. Like you're not really a co-sufferer. Mm-hmm. Almost. But com- uh, and then when I think about compassion, I almost think that I am 
actually sharing the the, the feeling much more uh, with with the person. But it might be just subjective. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. That's what I think about. In my mind, they're very, very similar. And as you suggested, they both come from roots that have to do with suffering. They're related to the word patient, for example. Very, very old mm-hmm. roots that mean uh, that mean to suffer, like the passion of Christ is the suffering of Christ. Yes. They're they're all connected, um, and the the come in compassion and the sim in sympathy both mean with. But I do have a sense of those two being different, and I think differently from the way that you're describing them. It, at least in in my mind, compassion is more for somebody who's at a different level. And, I mean, I'm almost picturing this visually, that, that sympathy is when you're side by side with somebody, you're, you're sitting down uh-huh. with them, you're being present there for them. And compassion to me is, is something that you feel for someone maybe less fortunate than you or maybe even more fortunate than you, but not on huh. an equal level. And that's just kind of my gut feeling. You know, for me, I guess when I think of compassion, it, it seems to connote a little bit more agency or potential agency. If you have compassion for somebody, then you're going to act on it. Whereas if you have sympathy, you're going to sit down with them by the waters of Babylon and weep with them or whatever. I see. What, yeah. You mean like you're less willing to actually act on it. And it, compassion would be more like you're feeling it at a deeper level. Um, that's an interesting way to or put it. Or not willing to be involved. Yeah, or or you don't have to act on it. I think with sympathy, you're just you're just there beside the person. I, I had a friend who died a few years ago who always said, "Love shows up." And I think that uh, that showing up in that way is sort of what I'm thinking about when I think of sympathy. You're just there. You're you're alongside somebody. There's a couple things that I would throw in here. One is not to get too hung up on the origins of these words because they have hundreds of years of history mm-hmm. in both Spanish and English. And they've taken different paths in both English and Spanish. We really need to be looking at these in context because, mm-hmm. like so many words, they cannot really stand alone. These are complex ideas that require a situation to give them their full meaning. They require the company of other words to give them their full meaning. Um, I would yes. say that I, I generally agree with what Martha was saying. I think of compassion as being about helping somebody because you are sharing their feelings. Mm-hmm. I think about empathy as sharing their feelings. And I think about sympathy having a little bit of pity in it, actually, because you are feeling their feelings mm. as well. But, uh-huh. but all of three of these words really require, uh, we really need to be talking about a specific case or a passage in a book or a particular environment uh-huh. we're encountering to really understand what they mean in that particular circumstance. Because in another circumstance, at another time and place, they may have different nuances and different flavors. Yeah, there's some overlap and and some difference there. And, and I bet we're going to have a lot of people who also want to join this discussion and weigh in on this, Mariana. Thank you for a really thoughtful well, call and a very thoughtful question, Mariana. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for everything you do. I've been listening to you for ages, and I'm so thankful about uh, podcasts because even in Argentina, I can still listen to you. (laughs) Terrific. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Have a great day. We were talking earlier about Spanish idioms, and I like this one that goes, estar en la edad del pavo, which means to be... Being a duck sage? A turkey. Turkey. To be in the age of a turkey. And that describes that period in adolescence where you're just kind of clumsy, awkward. Isn't that great? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Or if you go to a dance and you're just kind of being a wallflower and nobody's asked you to dance, you're just kind of standing there next to the wall. Uh, That's comer pavo, to to eat turkey. (laughs) Yeah, turkeys are pretty awkward, aren't they? Yeah. And what's also interesting about this is that the word pavo in Spanish for turkey actually goes back to a Latin word, pavo, which means peacock. And there's an English word, pavanine, which actually means like a peacock. 
But really, a turkey is kind of like a bizarro world version of a peacock, right? A turkey kind of wants to be a peacock, but never makes it. <laughs> a peacock wannabe? <laughs> yeah, peacock, turkeys are kind of peacock wannabes. Yeah, yeah, they want to be pavanine. But to be in your turkey's age is to have the awkwardness of adolescence. Yeah, Okay. right? Yeah. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Michael Pippen from Omaha, Nebraska. Hi, Michael. What's going on? Well, I was interested in hearing a little bit more about a word I stumbled upon when I lived in Tallahassee, Florida. The term was bear caught. And the only time I ever heard it was there in Tallahassee, and it was from two people that resided or lived or were raised in north uh, central Florida, basically the area west of Tallahassee, I'm sorry, east of Tallahassee, west of Jacksonville, Florida, in kind of the panhandle. Mm-hmm. And as best I can understand, it it means sunstroke. But outside of that, I haven't heard a whole much more about it. It mm-hmm. always caught my interest. Bear caught, B-E-A-R-C-A-U-G-H-T? Yes, sir. Like you were caught by a bear. Like you were caught by a bear, okay. which is what, what got me. Okay, good. What year would that have been? Oh, I, uh, this is 15, 20 years ago. Something really interesting about this term that, it, you know, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, I don't think I've ever heard this before. Yeah, I haven't. Um, but upon a little digging, I discovered what I think is the point of popularization for the term bear caught to mean sunstroke. And so by point of popularization, I mean something different than the point at which it was coined. So, so a lot of times a word is out there in the ether and it doesn't really catch on until somebody well-known uses it. And in this case, right. it's the book and the movie Cool Hand Luke. So there's this really? book, Yeah, there's this book published in 1965 by Don Pierce, that's Don with two N's, called Cool Hand Luke, which became a very well-known movie. Mm-hmm. And in the book and the movie, they use bear caught to mean heat exhaustion or sunstroke or mm-hmm. um, kind of just passing out from not having enough water or the heat being too much, that sort of thing. And there's a passage in the book that I want to share with you that I think really describes the term as Don Pierce meant it. Way out there in the middle of nowhere, many a good man has been bear caught, which is to be stricken with heat exhaustion and sunstroke. Your muscles cramp, your mouth is dry, your face is cold and yet sweating, your stomach knotted and nauseous, you're dizzy and your vision is blurred, you're weak, you stagger, even your voice is affected and becomes a mere croak. So that's a beautiful passage, right? Yeah, that's really kind of cool. I've seen the movie, never read the book. You know, I had heat exhaustion once and almost got carted away by the EMTs. And what I remember is that it came on me so suddenly. I mean, it was almost like something came up from behind Ah, me and just pulled me down. Pulled you down. Yeah. So I'm wondering if if that's part of the idea there. Possible, Michael. Do you remember the movie well? No, it's been a long it's been a long time. I remember it had you know Paul. I think it was Paul Newman. Yeah, in Paul it. Newman. And, that's right. Uh, yeah. a wonderful and, uh, movie. Uh, Bears. A few other things, but I don't remember the the phrase being used. The scene is uh, they're talking about heat exhaustion. One of the characters says, uh, um, "Bears going to be walking the road today," and another person replies and says, "You ever seen a man bear caught?" And then two of the other characters look kind of concerned or frightened. And this guy says, all the salt goes out of his body and the water follows the salt and the brain shrivels up like a dried pea. Convulsions, (laughs) shivering, very unpleasant to watch. And then somebody else says, man's never the same. Makes him lose his sex drive. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the movie took it one step. As beautiful as the passages in the book, the movie took it like up another notch, I think. Interesting. Wow. So there you go. Wow. That's what I know about that bear is really, Yeah. That is really cool. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for calling. Appreciate the call. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, Michael. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. My name is Avis, and I'm, uh, I'm in Arizona. And I had a question. Um, I uh, When I was a little girl... Uh, and this is in the 40s, my grandmother used to uh, do this thing. She would pull down her lower lid of her eye and uh, say, "Would uh, do you see the green in my eye? What she meant was she was meaning that she doubted the veracity of whatever I was saying. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. Okay. So so when you were a little girl, you said something that she didn't quite believe, and she would look at you and put her finger on her lower eyelid and lower it and say, do you see the green of my eye? That's it. Exactly. Uh-huh. uh-huh. This is a pretty universal gesture among a lot of different cultures. Uh, if you hear somebody giving you a tall tail, uh, you lower that eyelid with your, with, your, um, with your finger to indicate that you're alert, you're paying attention, you're, you're being skeptical of what they're saying. And uh, this is used, for example, in France. Um, there's an expression that translates as my eye. Monoi. Monoi. Yeah. And uh, in Japan as well, in a lot of anime uh, uh, drawings, um, it, it translates as red eye. And it's that same gesture. Italy and Germany as well. Yep. 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 It's used in a lot of, of cultures. And I was curious about where your grandmother was because um, in this country, the version I've heard is buckeye. Uh, Buckeye? Yeah, somebody will just make that same gesture and look at somebody skeptically and say, Buckeye, but I've not heard the the Uh. green of my eye. That's really Mm -mm. interesting. And the more universal, though, is my eye, right, or Mm -hmm. all my eyes. Yeah, yeah, just just as a... My eye, and maybe even without the gesture. Yeah, like, you got to be kidding. So uh, so she was part of a long tradition there. Avis, thank you so much for calling. Okay, thank you. Take Thanks for now. sharing that Bye-bye. story. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So in English, at least back to the 1700s in print, but no doubt that the folklore gesture of my eye goes back much further than that. Much further. And we probably got the my eye from the French monoi, where mm-hmm. I think it goes back to at least the 1400s. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm thinking of that gesture, too, that I see more often today, at least in the circles I move in, um, where you stick, to, you point two of your fingers oh, toward yeah. your eyes and then turn them around as if they're pointing at the other the person. I'm watching you. Yeah. yeah I do yeah, this to, with my thing. son. Oh, do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's you? like you're, you're, you're focusing on your eyes and yeah. you point your eyes at them. Yes. You're supposed to feel the death glare. <laughs> it's a variety of stink eye, right? Or skunk eye. Parent eye. Dad eye. <laughs> Dad <right>? eye. It <laughs> never <laughs> stops him. <laughs> no, it doesn't of course. work. 877 929 More nerdy wordy goodness coming up. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads. That's right. Imagine away with words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions. We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free. It's inexpensive, easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience. And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree. Sign up today. Your support means the world. waywardradio.org slash ad-free. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. In 1994, the great Nigerian writer Chinua Achebe gave an interview in which he talked about how he got started writing. He was a student at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria, and the English department there held a short story contest and said they would give a prize to the best story. So he thought, well, what the heck, I'll write a story. And he waited and waited, and no prize was given, and no prize was given. And finally, after months, the English department announced that there was not going to be a prize offered because no story that was submitted was up to their standards. And he said... 
I went to the lecturer who had organized the prize and said, you said my story wasn't really good enough, but it was interesting. Now, what was wrong with it? She said, well, it's the form. It's the wrong form. So I said, ah, can you tell me about this? She said, yes, but not now. I'm going to play tennis. We'll talk about it. Remind me later and I'll tell you. This went on for a whole term. Every day when I saw her, I'd say, can we talk about form? She'd say, no, not now. We'll talk about it later. Then at the very end, she saw me and said, you know, I looked at your story again, and actually there's nothing wrong with it. So that was it. That was all I learned from the English department about writing short stories. You really have to go out on your own and do it. Wow. Yeah, that's a great story, right? Yeah. Don't wait for the approval of other people, right? right? And those those meaningless prizes. Right, right. Sometimes you have to find your own way, and you can only learn to write by doing it. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course, you need instruction in grammar and style and form, but at some point, you have to break free and uh, just do it and have a whole lot of failures before you have success. He also mentioned that one of the professors there at that university gave him some advice that he really appreciated. His professor said, we may not be able to teach you what you need or what you want. We can only teach you what we know. Yeah, right. There's a limit on all stages of the writing process, right? Yeah. There's these... Uh, parts of the knowledge are eclipsed from you until you move to the next stage. Mm-hmm. And Achebe said that this was a big lesson for him, that what he took away from that school more than anything, more than any type of learning, was just an attitude. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of the common writerly advice, butt in seat. <laughs> That's how the writing gets done. Polish you put, your chair. You put your butt in the seat That's... and you do it. <laughs> So keep writing out there, y'all. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Mandy Stringer calling from Tallahassee, Florida. Hey, Mandy, welcome. Hi, what's up? What can we do for you? My question for you all is that over the Thanksgiving break, um, my husband and I and our kids met my parents in London for a week. And so as um, you're wont to do, you know, when in London, we had a little ritual every night of going to a pub. And so one day, a few days into the trip, I said, I looked at my watch, and it was about 5 o'clock, and I said, hey, it's 5, I'm jonesing for a pint, let's go to the pub. And my mother said, jonesing, what does that mean? And my father then, my father then looks at me and says, I don't think you should say that in polite company. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, he then explains to my mother what he thinks it means, which I cannot repeat on air. Um, and so I said, that is not at all what it means. It means that you're craving something. And, I, you know, then we had a little discussion about it. And then I vowed to get in touch with you two when I got back to the States and ask you about the origin of that word. Mandy, was he thinking it was something like a sexual arousal? Um, indeed, he was. For a man? Yes. Okay. Okay. Oh, boy, that's an hmm. interest. So where does Jonesing come from? That's your question. That is my question. All right. And, yeah. and in fact, I think you can't say it with the proper I-N-G. It has to be Jonesen. 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 All right. I find it all over the place. I will tell you one thing. I don't think your father is right. I don't know where he picked that up from. It means a craving. And the craving originally in the 1960s had to do a craving for heroin or other very addictive oh. drugs. So as early as 1962, we find a Jones being used as a noun. And then very shortly after, we find to Jones or to be Jonesing, the verb form of it. And then not long after that, not only does it mean a craving or an addiction or um, really needing it, it refers to the process of withdrawal. It refers to suffering the symptoms of not having that drug around you anymore or not having the Mm -hmm. thing that feeds your addiction. And then as happens to a lot of slang, underwent semantic bleaching, as it's called, where the kind of negative aspects faded away. And now you can say, oh, I have a jonesing for a hamburger. So it's not anything (laughs) illicit or anything that's truly dangerous for you, at least unless you have hamburgers every day. Anyway, so so the origin, though, is what you want to know. And unfortunately, it's mostly origin unknown. But I'm going to share the two predominant theories with you for what they're worth. Okay. One of them, which I kind of like, has to do with the phrase keeping up with the Joneses. So this phrase has been around, oh, for decades before you could jones for heroin or have a jones for heroin. And that means to try to keep up with the neighbors when they get something nice and like a new car or an above-ground swimming pool. You get a new car and you get an above-ground swimming pool. And the idea is 
if you're keeping up with the Jones, you're keeping up with this thing inside of you that demands attention and demands this particular kind of satisfaction. And I, I could see that. Unfortunately, drug slang doesn't ever really carry with it the history of its origins. It doesn't travel alongside its origin story. So we're only guessing at this point. The other theory, which I like a lot less, is that it has to do with Great Jones Street or Great Jones Alley in New York City, where supposedly drug addicts would hang out either to buy their drugs or to shoot up. The problem mm-hmm. with this theory is nobody can find anything in the printed record that shows that Great Jones Street or the alley ever was a haven for drug users. All right. Very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, uh, your, your dad, God bless him, was not really spot on on the meaning. You have the meaning down, Pat. Well, good. And little does he know what I will say in polite company. So <laughs> better, better if he doesn't know. <laughs> all right. Mandy, you're a delight. Call us again sometime, all right? Thank you so much. You guys have a great day. Okay. Thanks, Mandy. Bye. Bye-bye. Call us about language, 877-929-9673, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. And you can hit us up on Twitter at wayward. Brent, you and I are so spoiled by word processors. You can just cut and paste, mm-hmm. but you're not literally cutting and pasting, no. right? Mm-mm. Right? Not but um, but exactly, and that's where I was going. Not anymore. I don't know if you used to do this, but there were times when I was in college when I would cut out. Uh, something like literally cut out something from a paper mm-hmm. and paste something in but that wasn't always the case what did people do before that before cutting and pasting mm-hmm. people used straight pins to patch in a new bit of copy oh, in I've a manuscript seen that. i think you i have, have you? seen it yes well in the bodleian libraries mm-hmm. in oxford there are pins that jane austen used in her unfinished novel the watsons where she just made these little patches of, of text and pinned them to her manuscript. Oh, that's very How cool. cool. That? I think I have seen images of something like that, if not actually that. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. Yeah, and the librarians have to take those pins out just to help preserve the manuscript, but you can actually go there and see the pins, or you can see pictures of <laughs> Jane, them online. Jane Austen's pins, <laughs> P-I-N's. That's right. They're mightier than the... You're reminding me of how Hunter S. Thompson often delivered his articles when he wrote for Rolling Stone. How is that? He would fax them in, and and then the editors on the other end would take his faxes and cut them up and literally (laughs) lay them out on the floor and rearrange on the floor his writing, and then they would rekey it into their composition system, the compositing system. Is that right? Yeah. So that's a true kind of cutting and pasting as well. <laughs> Literally, huh? 877-929-9673. Hello. Welcome to Away With Words. Hello. Hi. Who's this? This is John, and I'm calling from Fargo, North Dakota. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. I'm a little bit older than a lot of people. I'm like 70 years old. And for the first 50 years of my life, I'd hear people say, you know, they graduated from college or she graduated from high school. Now I hear people say, she graduated high school or he graduated college, and it just doesn't sound right. What do you think? Graduate, the verb, has a really interesting history that goes back to the, uh, the early 16th century when graduate was a transitive verb. It was used to speak of what the colleges or universities or schools did to the students. It goes back to an old Mm. Latin word that means step. We get words uh, like grade from that or or gradual, step by step. And originally it was a transitive verb, meaning you do that to the students. You graduate your students. And then later it took on different meanings, like a student could graduate from a university or another school. Yeah, now the the from is starting to drop out. Is that the right way? It's a little bit more informal, I guess, but um, I'm I'm throwing in the towel on this one. <laughs> yeah, what's interesting? What's interesting to me, John, is that the older usage of something like L. Woods was graduated from California University, the was graduated, used to be seen as the only way to say it, and there are many grammar experts on the record 
kind of decrying any other form or usage of graduate to mean to to matriculate from a college and so forth. Um, really? Yeah. Okay. And so what, what's happened, we're now on the third version of graduate. And so even the version that you prefer the graduate from would have been seen as wrong. Mm-hmm. And that, right. is, that was at one time an abomination in the eyes of some grammarians. Mm, okay. But the from is disappearing, like Martha says. I'm with Martha. I've long since given up on that. I only find um, a few people holding the line on it. Um, I find that the usage guides and the style guides are behind probably 20 or 30 years on acknowledging that this transition and this transformation has already happened. Uh, you know, interestingly, recently I heard the uh, NPR reporter using uh, the uh, dropping the from from, mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. that uh, as well. Yeah, it's almost like the from is contained within the word graduate. Yeah, in it's a way. it's kind of like yeah. the word left. Like few of us would say, "I left from work and went home." Mm-hmm. We would say, "I left work," and so graduate is is more like that now, more like a, a verb like to leave. Very good. John, thank you. I hope we've helped you sort this out. <laughs> you have. Thank you. All right. Take care now. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. On our Facebook group, Brant Stoner posted a photograph that he had taken of a yellow box with the letters S-U-O-O-D-S on it. And he says, I spent a good 10 or 15 seconds this morning staring at this box on our counter, wondering what the heck suads were. I'm not a morning person. (laughs) Suads. Suads. And I stared at that photograph, too, wondering what in the heck he was talking about. But he was just looking at the box upside down. You turn suads upside down, it's spoons. (laughs) Which reminds me, I may have shared this story before, but when I was in college and had a snooze alarm Mm -hmm. uh, that had the letters Mm S-N-O-O-Z on it, Um, I hit it really hard one morning when I didn't want to wake up and sort of knocked it. And I got up a little bit later and I picked up this metal thing on the floor that had the letters Z-O-O-N-S on it. And I thought, Zunes, what in the heck? Zunes. (laughs) It took me a while to realize I had broken my snooze alarm. (laughs) But yeah, Zunes. 877-929-9673. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Whitney calling from Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Whitney, what's going on? Uh, nothing much. I was actually uh, calling about the word flooding. 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 Uh, I saw uh, a young person walking, and their pants were intentionally above their ankles, their long pants. Um, and so I was reflecting, and I was like, man, when I was a kid, we would call that flooding, uh, but there was like this negative connotation to it, almost as if like, you know, your family couldn't afford to uh, have pants that went all the way to your ankle. <laughs> and that made me start to think, and where did flooding, how does it even come about? Uh, are there geographical uh, instances for it? When did it get the negative connotation? Ooh, what oh, a good question. Uh, yeah, I know that feeling. Your parents buy the school clothes in August, and then by springtime, you look like a potato on two toothpicks because your pants have crawled up your ankles and exposed so much ankle, you look like soft pine waiting to be milled. Right. Um, I know that feeling. Yeah. My brother, I grew faster than my brother, and he used to tease me relentlessly. He, actually, he, the word he used was high waters, mm-hmm. uh-huh. as, as if you're going clamming out at the shore or something like that. But I know that yeah. feeling. And there's a bunch of other words for this, not just flooding, which is a, just a general description of what someone's doing when they're wearing their cuffs or their pants too high, but variations like flash flutters to refer to the pants themselves or flood <laughs> pants or just floods flood pants. and high waders as well. Mm. Ah. And these these all go back. Um, like I find high waters referring to, as an, as an adjective referring to, pants that are too short back to the 1850s wow yeah so i think people have been making fun of each other for clothes that don't fit quite right for mm-hmm. a long time <laughs> <laughs> certainly kids can be heartless oh yeah no that that was the context that i remembered it in like you didn't want someone to tell you you were flooding because you know that they're talking about your family and your means yeah exactly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. i think high waters tends to be more in the midwest does it 
than any place else. But sledding, as far as y'all know, only refers to the clothing. It doesn't have another application. Well, not in this. I mean, obviously it refers to flooding as in water flooding a place. So, right. so the idea is your pants are so, you're wearing your pants high as if there's a flood around you and you're trying to keep your clothes dry. Mm-hmm. So you, okay. as if you've worn capris or waders on purpose just to, you know, just to not get wet. Yeah, I mean, I would ask different people uh, in terms of generations as trying to get a feel for, you know, if they use the word flood and how they used it. And high water did come up a couple times, but it was mostly from folks from the northeast or out west. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And so I figured that there was, a, like, flooding might might be more southern in root. Yeah. Um, also, just, you know, the missing G, that's just so... Yeah, flooding oh, instead, uh-huh. flood yeah. instead of flooding. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, missing G. Mm-hmm. Well, cool, Whitney. Thank you for your call. Really appreciate it. No, thank you all, and thank you for what you're doing on this show. Take care now. Oh, thanks, right, Whitney. Too. Stay dry. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. There's a beautiful Spanish idiom that, Grant, you probably know, and it's dar a luz, which literally means to give to the light, but it's giving birth. Oh, yeah. How Br- cool is bring that? Bring something to light. Right? Bring a baby to light. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, from the darkness to the light. Dar a luz. Dar a luz. Beautiful. Yeah, in fact, if a mother is giving birth, you might say she's alumbrando. It's the same idea. She's illuminated? <laughs> she, yeah, she's illuminating. Yeah. Illuminating, gotcha. <laughs> kind of like being a glowing when you're pregnant. They often say that pregnant women look like they're glowing. Right, Interesting. right. But I just love the idea of, of the baby going from the dark to the light. And that's, that's a very common expression. If you speak Spanish or another language and you've got an idiom, tell us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Want more Away With Words? Listen to years of past episodes at waywardradio.org or find the show in any podcast app or on iTunes. Our toll-free line is always open, so leave us a message at 877-929-9673 and we'll take a listen. We love to get your messages at words at waywardradio.org or hit us up on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D and look for us on Facebook. This program would not be possible without you. Grant and I are out to change the way we listen and think about language, and you're making it happen. Thanks also to senior producer Stephanie Levine, director and editor Tim Felton, director Colin Tedeschi, and production assistant Emma Kelman in San Diego. In New York, we thank quiz guide John Chinesky and that master of keeping it real, Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc. From the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. So long. Bye-bye. Hey, listeners, we have a favor to ask. We'd love for you to fill out our listener survey at gum.fm slash words. Your feedback is crucial. It's quick, and it helps us make our show even better. It shapes our show, helps us plan, and ensures we're bringing you the content you love. That's gum.fm slash words. Thanks for being a part of what we do. Thank you.